Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, a biopharmaceutical business with a deep-rooted heritage in oncology and a commitment to developing cancer medicines for patients. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anise Chagpar and Stephen Gore. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about pancreatic cancer with Dr. Jill Lacey. Dr. Lacey is professor of medicine in the section of medical oncology at the Yale School of Medicine. Dr. Gore is a professor of internal medicine and hematology and director of hematologic malignancies at the Yale Cancer Center. Jill, thanks so much for joining me. And thank you for having me. And I guess... um... Oh, I'm not going to say the thing I was going to say because it's in bad taste, but I was going to say the... uh... The answer is pancreas cancer. <laughs> I just did it. I'm sorry. You That's... just did it. We're segueing to Alex Trebek. Yeah. <laughs> Yep. So, uh, yeah, so that's, uh, you know, that's the latest and I guess a slew of uh, famous people who, uh, who've who been diagnosed with pancreas cancer. What's up with that? Yeah, so it is true that a number of celebrities have been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. I think we all remember Patrick Swayze, yes. Michael Landon, Pavarotti, Sally Ride. And unfortunately, like most patients who are diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, um, they succumb to their disease in a relatively short period of Mm -hmm. time. So there is something different about pancreatic cancer relative to other cancers that are commonly diagnosed. And that difference is that the likelihood of surviving pancreatic cancer after diagnosis um, is lower than for almost every other cancer and certainly much lower than for the common cancers. So we, we often talk about five-year survival rates in the cancer world because that sort of gives us a metric as to how we're doing in terms of curing patients or if not curing them, prolonging their life. And the statistic for pancreas cancer is that the five-year survival rate is 8.7%. It's still that low, huh? It, that's low. It's improving. But if you contrast that with other common cancers, breast cancer over 90%, prostate cancer over 98%, uh, colorectal cancer 65%, in all cancers, it's about two-thirds of patients are five-year survivors. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a dismal statistic, and I think that's why this diagnosis has a different impact than many other cancer diagnoses. I would point out that it seems like it's a common cancer because so many famous people have been diagnosed with pancreas cancer, and they do get a lot of publicity, but it is actually an uncommon cancer. Only about 3% of all cancer diagnoses are pancreatic cancer. The incidence is not increasing, so we don't have an epidemic of pancreatic cancer, Hmm. fortunately. But it's going to move into second place as the second leading cause of cancer-related deaths after lung cancer probably in about one or two years. Hmm. The reason being is that we are making progress in other cancers through early diagnosis or screening, and treatments are improving at a more rapid pace in other cancers compared to pancreas cancer. To what extent is the problem with pancreas cancer the biology of the cancer and to what extent is it just because of the location of the pancreas such that symptoms don't appear until patients have fairly advanced disease? Yes. Or is it so, some combination? So a combination. So um, it is true that about 80% of patients who are diagnosed with pancreas cancer are inoperable at diagnosis and therefore incurable. 
they're treatable and we can prolong life, but the cure is elusive for those patients. Only about 20% of patients present with operable pancreatic cancer, and that really is the only path to cure um, at present. And so this is really in sharp contrast to many other cancers where the majority of patients who are diagnosed with cancer are diagnosed at an early stage where it's curable. So what are the reasons for that? And I think there are really three major reasons. So one is, as you indicated, the inherent biology of pancreatic cancer. Um, this is a cancer that has a predisposition, predisposition to uh, spread early on in its natural history to distant sites in the mm. body. So a very small pancreatic cancer may already have spread into the liver or the belly cavity at diagnosis. And it's, mm. it is also a somewhat aggressive cancer. It grows relatively quickly, so there's a narrower window for early diagnosis. The second reason is that there is often a modest delay in seeking medical attention. The pancreas is an organ that lies deep in the belly cavity, and tumors can get quite large in the pancreas before patients have any symptoms at all. And when they do develop symptoms, they're often quite nonspecific and vague and, and discounted mm -hmm. by the patient and often by their physician. So many patients will have, for example, vague abdominal complaints, some pain, particularly after eating, some gassiness, bloating. Their stool habits may have changed, but nothing that really uh, raises out. a red flag. Yeah. Um, about 40% of patients will present with jaundice, which is yellowing of the skin, the eyes, and darkening of the urine. And that can be um, an early symptom and sign of pancreas cancer. Those are the patients who are most likely to be operable. Um, and so that is the one symptom that may present early. And that's because the tumors that do that are in the part of the pancreas that's closest to the bowel, right? And, and so right. it happens so, right away or so earlier on. Correct. So these are tumors that arise in what's called the head of the pancreas. And in the head of the pancreas, you have the bile duct, which traverses through it. And the tumor in the head of the pancreas doesn't need to be very large before it's Depressing blocking the bile, duct, yeah. the bile duct and the bile backs up and that causes the, the jaundice. Um, other presenting symptoms, uh, diabetes, a significant percentage hmm. of patients who are diagnosed with pancreas cancer had a new diagnosis of diabetes within the past year. We see this very commonly. Hmm. And the reason for that is pancreatic cancer actually causes diabetes. It's sort of a symptom really? of the disease um, through inflammation of adipose tissue and causing insulin resistance. There actually has been some discussion of whether every adult who's diagnosed with new onset diabetes should undergo screening for pancreas cancer, but that certainly is not a recommendation at this time. Hmm. How would one screen if one wanted to? Like, is that CAT scans or...? Right. Basically, so or? so the the other challenge with pancreas cancer, the third challenge in early diagnosis is exactly that, screening. We do not have an effective validated screening tool for pancreatic cancer, and, and that is the reason why many patients present with advanced disease. And again, contrast this with all the other common cancers, mammograms for breast cancer, PSA for prostate cancer, CAT scanning for lung cancer, colonoscopy for colon cancer, pap smears, and HPV testing for cervical cancer. There is not an easy way to screen for pancreas cancer. 
you would think imaging modalities like CAT scans would be effective, but the but pancreas tumors often are quite subtle and difficult to see mm. on imaging such as CAT scanning, which has had a major impact in screening for lung cancer, for example. We don't yet have a blood test, but there is intensive research in this area. It's a very, very important area for research in pancreatic cancer. Hmm. And are there any um, family predispositions predispositions in uh, in pancreas cancer can there be yeah well there are <clears throat> there are there are some risk factors uh, for this disease that potentially can increase one's risk of developing pancreatic cancer and and we will talk about family history that's important first and foremost is age many cancers are a disease of aging as is pancreatic cancer so the typical age at diagnosis is right around age 70 give mm. or take a few years but about uh, uh, 15% of patients are in their 50s, so we do see this in younger patients and even patients in their 40s and rarely uh, in their 30s. Um, other risk factors, there's a slightly increased risk for African Americans versus non-African Americans, for males versus females. Um, smoking is a risk factor, about threefold increased risk if you're a smoker, and probably about 20 to 30% of pancreatic cancers are smoking-related. Long-standing diabetes is a slight risk factor, about mm. twofold. Um, obesity is a modest risk factor, about uh, twofold, and then family history. So there's tremendous awareness of the importance of our family history in um, determining our risk for developing cancer, and this is due to um, the wide availability of genetic testing through companies like 23andMe um, and through the public disclosure of uh, a cancer-carrying gene by people like Angelina Jolie, who carries the BRCA or BRCA gene, which predisposes to pancreas and ovarian cancer. And so for pancreas cancer, about 20% of patients will have a family history that suggests that this cancer is hereditary or familial in some way. And if you do genetic testing for genes such as BRCA, BRCA, you will find a faulty gene that you inherited either from your mother or your father in about 5% of patients. 5% of the pancreas cancer All, patients. Right. Mm -hmm. It's not a... Not a big number. A big number, but it's not an insignificant number. And because of that, it is now, it is now recommended, and this is a recent recommendation from our professional societies, that all patients and any patient who's diagnosed with pancreatic cancer should undergo genetic testing to see if they carry a gene um, that has predisposed them to pancreatic cancer that ha probably has implications for them in terms of their treatment and certainly has implications for their family members. So that is a new recommendation Wow, and that's big, right? That's huge. Because if you turn that's things huge. up, it's not just, as you pointed out, it's not just how is it going to affect your treatment, but it's now what do you do with that information in terms of understanding the risk to your relatives and disclosing that risk potentially. Correct. Really kind and of a big can of worms. It's huge. And we, we are picking up the familial form of pancreatic cancer in patients with pancreatic cancer and no family history whatsoever. So we talk about the family history a lot, and it's very important. But in this disease now, we have shifted to genetic testing. And, and there are implications 
for family members. So I said there is no screening. There's no screening for the general population. But if you are at particularly high risk because, for example, you inherited BRCA, BRCA does predispose to pancreas as well as ovarian and breast, you can enter into a screening program. Now, these, the screening is somewhat investigational, but I think it's very important for family members to know this mm. and to potentially participate in screening. Screening involves um, doing imaging, either an ultrasound through the endoscope, um, called an endoscopic ultrasound, or MRI imaging, or, or blood testing. Mm. And how often would a patient have that, or a non-patient? Yeah, well, I mean, that's not been worked out yeah. fully, uh, so that's, that's, that's a moving target. Right, I mean, endoscopy... Mm-hmm. It's not a big deal, but it's a big it's, deal if you needed to have it every six months, yes, for example. Yes, it is, it is a procedure and requires some light <laughs> anesthesia. Correct. Yeah. Wow. That's fascinating. Well, we're going to have a lot more to talk about uh, in pancreas cancer, Jill. This is, uh, uh, you know, it's always a very sobering subject, but right now we'd like to take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more about treatment options for pancreas cancer with Dr. Jill Lacey. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, working side-by-side with leading scientists to better understand how complex data can be converted into innovative treatments. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about smoking cessation. There are many obstacles to face when quitting smoking, as smoking involves the potent drug nicotine, but it's a very important lifestyle change, especially for patients undergoing cancer treatment. Quitting smoking has been shown to positively impact response to treatments, decrease the likelihood that patients will develop second malignancies, and increase rates of survival. Tobacco treatment programs are currently being offered at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers and operate on the principles of the U.S. Public Health Service Clinical Practice Guidelines. All treatment components are evidence-based and therefore all patients are treated with FDA-approved first-line medications for smoking cessation, as well as smoking cessation counseling that stresses appropriate coping skills. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Stephen Gore. I've been joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Jill Lacey, and we've been discussing treatment options um, and identification natural history of uh, pancreatic cancer. Jill, um, you, you've really impressed upon me uh, the difficulty of uh, early diagnosis and the uh, often you know, somewhat grim prognosis for many of patients, uh, many patients in terms of long-term survival. But uh, it seems to me that uh, compared to what I uh, learned when I was uh, training in oncology, things seem to have gotten somewhat better. I mean, I, I, you know, when I started, uh, there were no effective, basically no effective chemotherapy drugs for pancreatic cancer. And um, sometime, I guess, in the 90s, gemcitabine was approved as the, as the first drug approved for pancreas cancer. Granted, it was approved on a clinical trial that showed a rather small benefit, but it was a real benefit, it seemed, for some patients. Yes, I think that that's absolutely true. Um, I would like to emphasize that although those statistics are, are disappointing and we have a long ways to go, 
we are clearly making progress. If you just look at those five-year survival rates, over the past decade, the five-year survival rate has doubled. So it's gone from about 35 to 4%. 20 years ago now to 8 to 9%. So the absolute number is small, but the trajectory is favorable. And the, the biggest advances have come really in the last five to eight years. And you're right, prior to that, there was a sense of nihilism about this disease. Um, as a oncologist, we often felt that there wasn't a lot that we could do to really change the natural history of pancreatic cancer and improve and prolong patients' lives. But that, that has changed, and there really have been some, some advances in the field that are noteworthy. Hmm. Can you let us know what some of those are? Yeah. So um, about eight years ago now, so it's been a while, um, there was a big breakthrough in treating metastatic pancreatic cancer. Up to that point, as you mentioned, we were using a drug called gemcitabine that modestly improved survival for patients, about six months survival compared to three months with best supportive care. Um, and so about eight years ago, we heard about the results from a French study where patients with metastatic pancreatic cancer were treated with the standard treatment, gemcitabine, or with this new three-drug cocktail of chemotherapy agents called fulfurinox. And the results of that study were really quite stunning in that the fulfurinox doubled the survival, um, the, the average survival, to about a year. But notably, a subset of patients were surviving many years. And in addition, um, it, it appeared that fulfurinox substantially improved not only length of life, but also quality of life. So that was a big game changer in a field that had really stalled out for several decades in terms of advances in the field. So that's been the big advance for treating metastatic disease. And mm -hmm. since then, we, we now have another two-drug regimen that is also better than gemcitabine alone. It's a little gentler, a little easier. So we often will use that in patients who may be a little bit older or have a lot of medical comorbidities and wouldn't tolerate the more intensive three-drug regimen of mm -hmm. fulfurinox. Gotcha. Uh, so that's making things look a little bit, bit better for patients who have had spread of the pancreatic cancer, right? But yes. But what yeah. about for the patients who are dealing with localized disease? Right. So, um, you know, at diagnosis, we categorize patients based on their staging studies of a CAT scan as metastatic or operable able to go to surgery, and, and that's about 20% of patients. And then about 30 to 40% of patients um, do not have metastatic disease. The tumor hasn't spread, but it's encroached upon and is growing around major blood vessels such that the surgeon cannot operate on that patient and get the disease out. So when we, when we talk about patients with operable disease, that's about 20% of patients, and those are the patients where we know we have a path to cure. Mm. Um, surgery alone cures only about 10% of those patients. 10% so of the 20%. Of 20, 20, right. Mm. And about 15 years ago, we learned that if you add a drug such as gemcitabine to the surgery, and it's usually given for six months after surgery, about 80, about 20% of patients are cured. 80% of patients will still recur. But 20% as opposed to 10. As opposed to 10. That's so that's a good. doubling. Yeah. So that was a breakthrough. Um, but still just 20% of patients with 
potentially curable cancer. And it's cured. a big surgery. Right. And it's, for it's a, lot a of big people. surgery, although the surgical outcomes have really improved. All and, right. Well, and, separate story yeah, we can separate talk about story, if we yeah. have some time. Um, so, again, another big breakthrough in 2018. And again, this is a study that was done in France by our French colleagues. And they were the ones that discovered Fulfirinox. And so they conducted a study for patients who had surgery, the Whipple procedure, or distal pancreatectomy for operable pancreas cancer. And half of the patients were given the standard of care, which is six months of gemcitabine after surgery. And half of the patients were given this cocktail of three drugs, Fulfirinox. <clears throat> and again, really simply stunning results. <clears throat> the Fulfirinox essentially appears to have doubled the cure rate. So with Fulfirinox, it looks like we are now curing about 40% of patients. Wow. So if you think about surgery alone, 20, uh, 10%. Gemcitabine after surgery for six months, 20 to 25%. And now Fulfirinox, 40%. That's a huge advance in the field. So we're really very excited about that. And it brings us back to this question of early diagnosis. So now that we can cure a substantial percentage of patients who are operable, it's becoming critically important to diagnose patients when they're operable. Gotcha. So you, you said that the, um, the surgical outcomes had also improved all by themselves um, for these pancreatic cancer so-called Whipple procedures. What, what, what's changed there? Well, I'm not a surgeon, so I'm I'm a little bit out of my wheelhouse here. But but you see um, the results a lot. Oh yeah, I mean you probably remember from medical school after Whipple procedure, patients were really quite sick and Terrible. in the hospital for weeks and weeks. And the surgery was almost 12 hours a lot of times. Right, and now the surgical techniques have improved. Often patients are discharged by by day four. Part of that is that um, we are doing a better job in selecting patients for surgery in part because of better imaging. So now every patient with pancreatic cancer who doesn't have evidence of distant spread on a CAT scan will undergo a special CAT scan uh, procedure called a pancreatic protocol. And a pancreatic protocol CAT scan allows us to see the relationship of the tumor to the blood vessels. And we know from decades of experience that if this tumor is encroaching on blood vessels, touching or certainly wrapping around blood vessels, surgery can either be impossible or can be very difficult which, with a much higher risk of bad outcomes. So now the, the, the practice has changed to administering chemotherapy before surgery, mm. and most commonly we are using Fulfirinox given its effectiveness in patients who have blood vessel involvement, really any blood vessel involvement. If it's possible to shrink the tumor, pull the cancer off the blood vessels, the surgical outcomes will be better. So that's another reason why the surgical outcomes are improving. Hmm. So it sounds like you need to be involved with your medical oncologist and your surgical oncologist and everybody else really before anything's happened. A multidisciplinary assessment is absolutely critical in this disease. Um, certainly any patient who does not have overt metastases, involvement of the liver or the lungs, on that first staging CAT scan should have a multidisciplinary evaluation. They should have that CAT scan with a pancreatic protocol 
and their case should be discussed in a multidisciplinary setting, either formally at a tumor board or in a multidisciplinary clinic. Mm. And the and the surgery is still not for the faint of heart, right? I mean, this is not something where you go to Joe, average surgeon down the corner, ideally, right? Ideally, you 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 want any complex surgery to be done by a surgeon who does a lot of that procedure. That that is important, absolutely. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's a lot for, for patients. I, you know, I think people hear the word pancreas cancer and, um, you know, I think it's a, such an emotional uh, bang. You know, I've seen it in my family and it's, uh, it's, it's you, you feel like this pall uh, just because the, the, the reputation of the disease is so devastating. You're, and, you know, as you pointed out, it need not necessarily be, but it, it's... It need you know, not necessarily be. That's right. And many patients, when they're diagnosed, and they often look at the diagnosis first from a gastroenterologist who's mm-hmm. done the endoscopic ultrasound, and there's a few days before that result in seeing a specialist in pancreas cancer, they start going on the internet, they're learning things about pancreas cancer, some of which is accurate, some of which is sure. very frightening. So they will come to you often quite informed, also mixed in with some misinformation, but also very anxious and very fearful. And without any context, right? Correct. So it's very important to go through the information they bring uh, to you um, with them to um, make sure they understand that it's not always a death sentence and that we uh, can cure many patients, and for those that we can't, we can prolong their life and improve their quality of life. And a subset of those patients will live many years. Hmm. Well, that's certainly much more positive than it used to be. Correct. Right. And what about the quality of life issues? I, I know that for some patients, pain control can be a real problem with advanced pancreas cancer due to its location around nerves and stuff. I've, have we done better? Uh, that and appetite, of course, is, a, is another one, right? Yes, I do think we're better at at managing symptoms in many cancers, including pancreatic cancer. We talk a lot about getting palliative care involved early on in patients with advanced cancers, and that is important in pancreas cancer. Pain is is a big problem for many patients with advanced pancreatic cancer, so it's important to optimize pain regimens. Uh, Sometimes we can do a procedure called a celiac nerve block that can help with pain. Mm -hmm. So that's important. Um, Oftentimes, patients will have reduced appetite, and there are things that we can do for that. Many patients with pancreatic cancer will have a syndrome called pancreatic insufficiency. means that the pancreas isn't making enough digestive enzymes to properly digest their food, And for the patient, what that means is a lot of gas, a lot of cramping, a lot of bloatedness, a lot of just gastrointestinal distress that can really affect their quality of life. Mm. So it's very important to get those patients on pancreatic enzyme supplements, which you can take by mouth, that can really alleviate those symptoms. So all of those supportive care interventions are extremely important in maintaining quality of life. Mm, Yeah. You know, I I may have not discussed this with you previously, Jill, but my mom had pancreas cancer from which she expired, and uh, celiac plexus nerve block uh, was amazing for her, um, which we had done 
reasonably early on into her course, but she was having pain and she wasn't dealing well with narcotics. And she was essentially pain-free for the rest of her course um, with minimal or no narcotics. It was, a, it was an incredible blessing for her. Um, so I'm, I'm a big proponent of making sure that those kinds of modalities uh, at least be thought about. Um, not that narcotics aren't also very wonderful drugs and very important and other things that we can do, but it, it was so nice to have her uh, be not clouded, uh, you know, for her last few months. Yeah, absolutely. Celiac uh, axis or celiac nerve block can be a game changer for many patients. Not everyone, but for those that benefit as you say, it's huge. It was huge, yeah. yeah. And we, we, she was at a place where we kind of had to talk them into it, but, um, you know, and it, <laughs> which also gets to the whole thing about patient advocacy, because had I not been an oncologist, um, who knows? Um, so, you know, as much as we often say, beware of what you find on the internet, you know, it's wonderful to have access to at least discussion on the internet where, you know, hopefully you'll have a physician who's got time and patience to uh, at least listen to reasonable things that you've seen and be able to contextualize them and say, yeah, that's a good idea. Well, I hadn't thought about that. Or, yeah, this is why that's, you know, of course I've thought about that. And that's this is why it's not appropriate for you or for your loved one. Yes, it's very important to go through the information that patients bring to the visit and take everything seriously. Right. Um, so easy to blow people off, right? Or to right. be blown off. Right. And I have to say, I've learned a lot from my patients. Right. You listen, you, you, you will learn. It's, it's, it's very important. Dr. Jill Lacey is professor of medicine in the section of medical oncology at Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.